Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Congested Knight. And we are back this week with number 48 on AFI's top 100 list of films. Rear Window. Rear Window. 1954 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. We've seen one Hitchcock film on this list before. We sure have. North by Northwest. And uh, I wasn't too impressed. You really didn't care for that movie. I enjoyed it. I mean, it may not be my favorite of Hitchcock, but it wasn't bad. It felt really generic to me, but I will give away some of my feelings on this film already and say that I enjoyed Rear Window far more than I enjoyed North by Northwest. Yeah, I you know, I think the the genre of Rear Window lends itself to to be something that I expected you to enjoy more. And we will definitely talk about that genre. Before we do that, I think we should get to a plot synopsis. We sure should. Uh, so Rear Window is the story of L.B. Jeffries, a photojournalist used to an exciting life that is housebound due to a broken leg. In the last week of his confinement, his neighborhood is struck by a heat wave prompting his neighbors to keep their windows open and Jeffries to observe them. His window opens onto a courtyard where he's able to see into the apartments of all of his neighbors. Some of the neighborhood people include, uh, and these are his nicknames, they include Ms. Torso, a dancer, uh, Ms. Lonely Hearts, an old maid, uh, a young male composer, a newly married couple, uh, a middle-aged couple who live on the top floor of the apartment across the street, or I guess across the courtyard, and another middle-aged couple composed of an invalid wife and her salesman husband. Jeffries uh, is visited, of course, by his socialite girlfriend, Lisa, uh, and his insurance nurse, Stella. Stella uh, suggests quite often that Jeffries should marry Lisa, but he resists, saying that Lisa is too perfect and not able to live the kind of adventurous, freewheeling lifestyle that he does. Meanwhile, Jeffries overhears late one night a scream, and then he awakes even later to see Thorwald, that's the salesman, uh, leaving his apartment over and over with his big salesman case. Uh, Jeffrey no longer sees Thorwald's wife, Uh, the invalid, and begins to suspect that Thorwald murdered her. Uh, Later, he notices Thorwald uh, with a large knife and a saw, uh, and that Thorwald has hired men to take a very large trunk wrapped in rope away from his home. Jeffries shares this story with his detective friend, Tom Doyle, who, after doing some research, tells Jeffries that there's no reason to believe Thorwald is a murderer. Supposedly, his wife has gone upstate. She seems to be there. There seems to be no reason to think anything otherwise. However, Stella and Lisa begin to agree with Jeffries as they continue to observe their neighbors. Eventually, The dog of the upstairs neighbor couple is found dead, presumably for digging in Thurwald's flower garden. Jeffries, Stella, and Lisa suspect that some or all of Mrs. Thurwald is buried there in the flower garden. Jeffries convinces Lisa to put an accusatory note under Thurwald's door. Jeffries tricks him then into leaving the house so that Lisa and Stella can dig up the flower garden, but they don't find anything. Then... 
Lisa climbs the fire escape, breaks into Thurwald's apartment through an open window, and begins to investigate. Thurwald starts to come home. Jeffrey calls the police, who arrive just in time to save Lisa from murder uh, by arresting her. She signals to Jeffries across the way through the window that she has found the wedding ring of Mrs. Thurwald, but Mr. Thurwald spies her signal and notices Jeffries spying on him. Stella then follows Lisa to post her bail. Jeffries calls Doyle for help, but he's forced to leave a message. When he receives a call back, he assumes it's Doyle uh, and immediately gives an update on Thurwald, but the caller is, of course, Thurwald, who immediately heads over to Jeffries apartment. He breaks right in. The door's not locked. Um, and as he approaches Jeffries, Jeffries tries to blind him over and over with a camera flash. Despite his struggles against Thurwald, Jeffries is then lifted out the window and pushed out it, uh, falls to the ground below, but his fall, of course, is broken by police officers. Uh, Thurwald then shortly after confesses. Um, not long after this, Jeffries is now again housebound with not one leg cast, but two. The neighbors have returned to some normalcy. Miss Torso's short boyfriend has returned from the service. Miss Lonely Hearts has begun to shack up with the composer, and the dog owners have gotten a new dog. Lisa, visiting with Jeffries, is reading a book on the Himalayas, but as soon as he falls asleep into a nap, she pulls out her Old Faithful, a fashion magazine. So we've got a comedy ending, right? There are happiness abounds for everybody, and the murderer is assumedly behind bars. Well, happiness to a point. I mean, Lisa is... I'll, she's being a little deceptive at the end. Oh, th listen. Lisa is amazing. Lisa is the star of this film. She truly is. I mean, this is this is a fact. And although Jeffries is supposed to be our protagonist, I really don't care if he gets strangled by Thorwald at the end, except for the fact that it would make Lisa sad. Wow, so it sounds like Lisa might be your girlfriend. Nope, I just think she's a great character. <laughs> All the tension and the pathos is concentrated on her, and Jeffries really becomes a secondary or tertiary character for me. And I think I'll just jump right into my thesis because I want to get this out of the way early. I think this film is tense and exciting and enjoyable. But I'm just not sure that this is a film we can condone today in terms of its thematics. Because it's of its time, right? 1950s. At the heart of this narrative and characterization is the imperative for the perfect woman to adjust to a flawed man. Jeff ends up as a secondary or tertiary character to someone like Lisa, who, well, in the scene you mentioned in your plot synopsis, where she breaks into Thorwald's house, she takes the initiative, and does this really cool move where she gets the ring, even though you know it tips off Thorwald that Jeffries is up there spying on him, she is able to cinch the, the case, basically, because Doyle being Doyle, is not getting anywhere with anything. I think at one point he says something like, there are all kinds of things people do in the privacy of their homes they can't explain in public, which is like, I don't know if that's true, actually. Oh, I would say it's true. <laughs> but, but Doyle is not being any help. It's not until they find that wedding ring that this is actually taking off, right? So Lisa does that. Jeffrey just sits in the chair and looks at people all the time and then complains that Lisa is too perfect. 
Right. I mean, that is uh, the the big problem here. The relationship between Jeff and uh, Lisa is is rife with problems. Of course, when he says she's too perfect, what he really means is that she's too uh, essentially. I don't know. I, I guess domestic is a little too strong of language because well, because she's a a wealthy entrepreneur with her own clothing line. Yeah, she's and she and and she's you know an entrepreneur socialite. So what she is 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 too sort of grounded and and I guess urban for him, um, because of course he wants her to go live out of a suitcase, uh, and and take pictures of fast cars and rhinos and who the fuck else knows what. So really, his problem is that she's not. Uh, I don't know, is free wheel. She doesn't have as much agency, I guess, as him in a, in a certain way, a certain kind of agency, which of course she doesn't have because it's 1954. Well, she's very, <laughs> she has a very progressive role as a woman in 1954 as a businesswoman with her own independence. But the irony of this is that if Jeffries is saying she doesn't have enough, you know, get up and go or independence or autonomy in that way, he's restricting her autonomy by saying, come with me, do these things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the idea that a woman is too perfect for him, it, it, the big problem, of course, too, is that there's, like, weird male insecurity that it, that's being portrayed here, right? His girlfriend is too good, right? As though he then, oh, his masculinity is compromised because he can't keep up, right? Uh which is which is problematic and and of course the reason she does all these things in this film like climb up the you know fire escape and sneak into the apartment uh is at least in part to please and prove herself or to please jeff and to prove herself to jeff right which is a problem as well yeah well i so i got the impression that jeffries finds her too frivolous but then when they are doing their little peeping together on Miss Torso, as she's got three gentlemen callers, obviously people from, I think she's a Broadway dancer, is that right? So mm-hmm. she's entertaining people and they're all trying to hit on her. And he's like saying, oh, look at her, you know, her life's so easy, she got the pick of the litter. And then Liz very meaningfully looks at Jeffries and says, she's doing the hardest job a woman has, juggling wolves. And I right. thought that was such a great line because it illustrates... Lisa is doing the same thing, right? She's trying to make it in this man's world, as cliche as that sound, but, you know, it's 1954. And it's not frivolousness that's driving her. It's this shrewd business sense in the same way she pursues this case with Jeffries because it's something important to him. Yeah, I mean, so she, there's a very interesting world that, that Lisa inhabits, right? Because it is one of as you've pointed out business it's one of sort of the social sphere uh it's it's one of the romantic sphere right like she that line clearly uh sets up that there are certainly other men coming after her and um oh what's his name that plays jeffries i have it james stewart james stewart but james stewart is definitely older than grace kelly in this film without a doubt um and actually at times you know seeing him get out of that bed i was like you're you're running around taking pictures of all these like you're you might be a little too old for this and i think this actually points to my pivotal scene i want to get to because it's in this moment where he's talking to stella which by the way i love stella she's fantastic oh my god she's great yeah she's just telling things like it is to jeffrey's and jeffrey's just like oh i don't know she's too perfect this and that and the other and stella's like you're overthinking this 
you know, just marry her. You're going to be happy because she's great. So I think in the context of the film, whether or not what their actual ages are supposed to be, it's still like a 10, 15 year age gap between these characters and probably the actors as well. So, you know, he's called a young man, reasonably healthy young man, but he's like in his 40s or maybe 50s, it seems like. And that is, again, just so wild to me that he's like, oh, I still want to I still want to sow my wild oats and go do things. Right. I'm like, dude, you when he's getting up out of that bed and you see him without a shirt on, I'm like, dude, you look like my dead grandfather. What are you doing? (laughs) What wild oats do you have left to sow? Yeah, and the fact that she's willing to compromise and bend to his will, again, it's just like, uh, I just, it it gets at me. But I guess that's part of why this film is effective is because I'm really pulling for Lisa in this. And Jeffries is like, okay, whatever. I know you have to be the focal point because it's 1954, but but for real. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's turn to the pivotal scene because it is that conversation that Stella is having with Jeffries and saying, look intelligence has gotten our race in trouble right as humanity and i think that obviously has some thematic undertones for the film itself let's go ahead and take a listen then we'll talk about it some more all right you know i think you're right i think there is going to be trouble around here i knew it oh do you do you ever hate that stuff gives you circulation something to fight oh i see what kind of trouble lee's a frame one you kidding She's a beautiful young girl, and you're a reasonably healthy young man. She expects me to marry her. That's normal. I don't want to. What's abnormal? I just, I'm not ready for marriage. Every man's ready for marriage when the right girl comes along. And Lisa Fremont is the right girl for any man with half a brain who can get one eye open. Oh, she's all right. But you do have a fight? No. Father loading up the shotgun? What? Please, darling. It's happened before, you know. Some of the world's happiest marriages have uh, started under the gun, as you might say. No, she's just not the girl for me. Yeah, she's only perfect. She's too perfect. She's too talented. She's too beautiful. She's too sophisticated. She's too everything but what I want. Is um, what you want something you can discuss? What? Well, it's very simple, Stella. She belongs to that rarefied atmosphere of Park Avenue, you know, expensive restaurants and then the literary cocktail parties. People with sense belong wherever they're put. Can you imagine her tramping around the world with a camera bum who never has more than a week's salary in the bank if, if she was only ordinary? You never gonna get married? I'll probably get married. When I do, it's gonna be to someone who thinks of life not just just as a new dress and a lobster dinner and the latest scandal. I need a woman who's willing to, hold it, who's willing to go anywhere and do anything and love it. So the honest thing for me to do is just call the whole thing off, let her find somebody else. Yeah, I can hear you now. Get out of my life, you perfectly wonderful woman. You're too good for me. Look, Mr. Jeffries, I'm not an educated woman, but I can tell you one thing. When a man and a woman see each other and like each other, they ought to come together, wham, like a couple of taxis on Broadway and not sit around analyzing each other like two specimens in a bottle. There's an intelligent way to approach marriage. Intelligence. Nothing has caused the human race so much trouble as intelligence. (laughs) Modern marriage. Now, we've progressed emotionally. Baloney. Once it was see somebody, Get excited, get married. 
Now it's read a lot of books, fence with a lot of four-syllable words, psychoanalyze each other until you can't tell the difference between a petting party and a civil service exam. Okay, so Stella laying some truth on Jeffries. Jeffries not hearing it, but this is kind of prophetic from Stella, right? She is outlining some of the ways in which he gets himself in trouble because he's doing this rear window ethics that Lisa brings up later on in the film. He's peeping on all these people and there's trouble brewing. She, she recognizes it. She feels it. And she says, intelligence is also a large problem for our species, our race that we overthink things. And so this case that he's working seems at first to be a case of overthinking. Yes. Turns out that he's right. Once I saw Thorwald leave with his sales case, I'm like, oh, he's chopped up little pieces and he's taken her different places, which mm-hmm. more or less was true. Right. But it does does work that tension between Jeffries more or less has the idea of the truth and people like Doyle, the police, and even at some point Stella and Lisa aren't believing him. I mean, the the film does do a good job though of building that tension and we and we do have to remember it is, you know, 1954. We live in this sort of post M Night Shyamalan uh world with twist and twist and twist and twist, right? Um and so, you know, perhaps the places where you're seeing lack of tension uh or lack of another twist uh you know, would have been beyond audiences in in 54 34 minutes in the film we have a good idea of how the murder went down and who is responsible and that the rest of the plot is just the explication of that i was hoping there was some initial wrinkle to it something that was going to at least stir up some kind of additional twist i mean we have the rosebush thing where the dog ends up being strangled but whatever was buried there was moved. So we didn't get a payoff necessarily from that, and I thought that could have been one way in which this could have been built up. Yeah, I I would have loved to see that go a little bit further. Uh, But again, I I sort of chalk that up to, uh, you know, it's age. This, you know, we're again, we're used to a lot of fun twists that, that do go somewhere, and I think that, you know, and we'll deal with this in three questions, so... Which I think is maybe a great place for us to, in fact, turn to our three questions. Should we? Should we? Let's do it. So, Ethan, what do we owe to this film? One of the most important themes of this film is this critique of of voyeurism, right? Um, And I think that this film does a very good job of metacognitively uh, critiquing film uh, and, and television, right? Isn't it Stella that says, we're a nation of peeping Toms? Yes, she said, yeah, she says we're a nation of peeping Toms. And uh, there is something about this film that we get as much enjoyment uh, as 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 Jeff. Right. And in a lot of ways, Jeff serves as a stand in for us, the viewer. Um, And so the film does, I think, critique film in general in a way that, you know, is repeated a lot in both film and television and other media uh, from here on out, right? Because that is essentially what we're doing, especially if uh, we deal with, you know, things in in terms of realism, right? Uh, And that is theatrical realism, which, you know, seeks to literally 
uh, lift away the fourth wall and let us get a glimpse into, you know, that life or naturalism, I guess. Right. Ethan, I think you're right about Jeffries being something of the audience surrogate. And maybe that explains my concern about him being so secondary or tertiary the plot, because we as the viewer, as he is the viewer of the Thorwald situation, don't really have any actual agency in the plot. And that's why Lisa and in part Stella step forward in this film. And so I think that is very useful. But I think one place of dissonance is the fact that I don't identify with Jeffries and his really, um, I wouldn't say it's deplorable, but really backwards ideas of love and marriage, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think that that is a reflection of the 1950s, uh, and it's not a, a very positive one. Yeah, similar suspense or drama or terror films have cited this one as being very instrumental in that. None of them that I looked up in this list were things that jumped out at me as very large titles or things that I really knew about. But it seemed like right around the turn of the century in 2000, a lot of people were saying this film really did a lot for them in terms of their directorial habits in terms of directing suspense films. Well, I just think we can think about this film. I mean, Jeff as a character is the moviegoer. He's trapped in a room in a seat unable to act with any of the characters in the film really uh, except for through the people he knows uh, who might as well be characters in the movie he's watching um you know he he is such a surrogate for the audience member and then of course th- there is a point I mean at the end when Thorwald comes in to the apartment right it, it's not just an indictment of of Jeff, it's also kind he's kind of coming after us. It'd be almost as though the the murderer opened the door to the theater, right? And and came in and and was like you guys know too much, you know. So I think that there is something about that like when you're talking about how these directors feel so affected by it and you, we talk about this sort of domestic thing. I mean, the fear in any sort of domestic uh horror story is that our domestic space will too be invaded, right? Uh, and Jeffrey's space does get invaded. Uh, and in a way, you know, it, it the Thurwald almost comes after us, right? I mean, that there, there are those shots at the end where he's coming straight at us, right? Like we can see him coming straight at us. And so I think there it does sort of heighten that horror because, again, now we're not just watching someone have their house invaded right but we're watching someone who's been watching along with us the entire time uh and then is and then is caught watching and is in trouble because he's watching and you're complicit in that right like you are brought into this idea of voyeurism very very early on with jeffries and so i think you're right about the indictment therein is that we have become complicit in what is the most pure people watching there can be you're watching people Mm -hmm. in the privacy of their homes and, you know, just set aside the fact that these people, for some reason, don't have blinds or shades. 90 degrees <laughs> is hot, sure, but I don't know about no blinds, no windows, no shades or anything. But set that aside, the fact that we are now enjoying this kind of voyeurism and seeing the secret lives of people. Oh, and yeah. And then we're held accountable for that at the end of the film. Well, and I think that, like, we can think about the set in this film as so perfectly enticing right it 
begs us to watch. Uh, and, and we love to do it. I mean, people love to do it. This is why we like stories. This is why, you know, at, in, 60 years later, 70, or yeah, 60, about 60 years later, you know, this is why people, you know, when the, when the dawn of the internet came through and you've got people on webcams all day, you know, there was that chick, uh, that was, on, that put webcams in her house. There was a, this American life episode about her, uh, and, and people tuned in and watched her life for, for a couple of years, you know, and of course there's all the weird pornography that we can go into, but, you know, people love this idea of sort of seeing what they shouldn't see and, and seeing what's not theirs to, you know, it's voyeurism. Mm -hmm. And the idea that this film leans into it, digs deep into it, criticizes it, engages us in it, uh, because again, right, we become complicit at the very beginning watching Miss Torso, um, for good or ill, right? Uh, in the fifties, you know, we might have thought of it more as harmless fun. Um, but of course, you know, in in a twenty eighteen com uh context, it, it's it's weird, it's uncomfortable, and and it it's unpleasant. And I think that this film straddles that line the whole way through. Like we want to do it and we don't want to do it at the same time. Next question: Do we yeah. care about this film? I, I mean, I think we sort of do, uh, only because, I mean, or not only because, but at least because it uh, has inspired a lot of people. And the to, to sort of look back at a 50s version of voyeurism is almost quaint in 2018 because of the way the world has changed so radically. I really enjoyed this film, so I'm naturally inclined to care about it but i do think it makes a commentary on film on voyeurism on theater going on watching in general and i think that's a very modern concept still even though we do live in 2018 now i think people watching is a kind of voyeurism and i don't know i feel like this very strong pull to look in at people's windows when you're driving home and they have their blinds open at night yes. like i like that secret life there yeah. I think is really enticing to us as people, as curious individuals. And yeah. obviously the extreme of that would be Peeping Tom or some kind of weird person that is just camping out and watching people. But I think the idea of that pull, I think, is recognizable in each of us. Yeah. And and I think that this is a film that, you know, per, and, and I don't know enough film, film history to really say this is the first, but this is certainly the first film on the list or of all the films we've watched, even off list, that directly confronts this idea of like, yeah, it's kind of fucked up that what we're doing is is watching people's lives in, in one way or another. I've actually got a little story about this you want to... Oh, God, Matt, don't tell me anything illegal. <laughs> Nothing illegal necessarily happens. I was visiting a friend in a city that won't be named, and that friend had some co-workers that were on a higher floor in the apartment. It's a corner apartment. All their walls were glass, and they would look down onto other apartment buildings, <sighs> oh, and they yeah. had like, like a magnifying sort of scope <gasps> that they could go and look at. And it was just set up and they you know, invited me to try. And so I looked through and... Oh, it's wonderful, isn't something like that? It had to have been crazy. It was weird because I was... Where it was focused, I was just watching this woman watching a TV. With a, it was a film of some kind with subtitles. I could sit there and read stuff. I just watched uh. the movie with her 
from 200 yards away. And it just felt like such an uncanny, strange moment. But yeah, like people take this to an extreme for sure. And you know what? Shakespeare said it best. Men's eyes were made to look, so let them gaze. I leave my windows open all the fucking time. Let them look, you know. (laughs) I'm definitely on the other side of the fence where everything is closed at all times. No lights, sources, uh, no open windows, shades drawn. I'm the hermit recording here from my unassailable castle oh yeah no fuck it i open everything up i don't care you know what if they see what they don't didn't want to see then they shouldn't have been looking (laughs) well ethan why don't we open it up to our final question let's do it (laughs) does this film hold up yes of course it does it except i mean except for some of the questionable gender politics um you know some of the issues between with the relationship between jeff and uh Lisa and of course the blatant sexism of of you know Miss Torso and some of the blatant sexism uh, within Miss Lonely Heart as well. Um, that stuff is is kind of icky today. Oh, and Doyle I think is a big example as well. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, so in that respect, it, it does not. But I mean, in in the sort of sheer pleasure that you get from watching this film uh, through the you know this beautiful set. Looking into these people's apartments, I mean, we get a chance to be to harmlessly be voyeurs, uh, and less harmful for or less harmless for Jeff, of course. Um, but you know, we as the audience members get to sort of harmlessly look in and not necessarily feel bad uh, about it all, and and it is fascinating. I mean, this film could have been three hours of just the goings on in people's apartments from his window, and I would have watched it. So. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is a very strong film for that modern idea of voyeurism that we're all so familiar with today in 2018, which I think, you know, is different in degree, perhaps, but not in kind from 1954. But additionally, you know, I think there's a much larger conversation to be had about the gender politics because it's 1954. You can only expect so much. Society was the way it was. And I don't mean to be like an apologist. Same thing that we get into with racism in Poe or Faulkner or H.P. Lovecraft, questions like that, right? Is that how much of that do you chalk up to the times and how much do you say, look, that's unacceptable? How much can you divorce someone from their work? Which is another question that comes up with something we talked about a few months back with Dustin Hoffman and the sexual harassment stuff that he's been accused of as well. And I'm not a Hitchcock scholar or anything, but from what I understand, Hitchcock had some not so kosher things with some of his female, uh, actresses actors you know and i if i remember correctly he did not have a i mean he may have dated grace kelly i know that he he had all these muses there's some uncomfortable shit there that you know we could maybe delve into but you know if we put a little bit of this to the side just a little bit um you know and and sort of accept it to a point as part of the you know as as sort of a chestnut of the uh 50s you know this film just i mean it is thrilling it holds up really well i'm i'm sort of with you i would have liked to have seen uh one one or two more little twists and turns but again you you know hitchcock is one of the you know early masters of these thrillers with twists and things like that anyway so this is sort of that thing in its infancy in film you know I also think the color palette of the film is really good. Mm, And I think the sets, something about the way it looks 
the way in which they look fake, I don't know. I really enjoy it. It's kind of that Disney World or Universal Studios look where it is a facsimile or approximating or approaching yeah. real, but doesn't quite. It looks almost like Fairyland-esque, which I think may also be thematic unintentionally, right? I think they're trying to make a set look like a city block. But for me, I think it just adds to the whimsy of it, maybe? Yeah, no, I mean, I think there is a sort of uh, almost a fever dream element to it. The apartments don't look quite right they like they look like maybe a maybe they look a little too small or their windows are a little too open or whatever it is right it it doesn't look it looks just enough like a set uh that it feels a little maybe uncanny perhaps um which i think i really think that heightens the whole feel of this thing Mm -hmm. right this whole feel of like are is what we are watching real is it not did he murder her or are we going nuts right like do we believe uh jeff or do we not i i I, so i think that 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 only adds to the whole thing and ethan as we wrap up this episode i want to mention we're not done with hitchcock yet we'll return later on the list i think pretty later on the list with vertigo yes vertigo which I've heard a lot about. Of course, I haven't seen. This film was based on a short story, as we saw at the yes. top. And that seems to be something of a mainstay within the AFI list. And Hitchcock's other well-known, or one of his other well-known films, The Birds, was also based on a short story by Daphne yes. du Maurier. And those films seem to be well-regarded. And again, mm-hmm. I think the AFI rewards directors or creators or whomever that utilize these good stories or good novels and do something with them on the screen. So I'm excited to look ahead to the next Hitchcock film, but I think that's going to do it for this episode. And uh, we'll be back for our Patreon episode, the conclusion to the thrilling trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. So if you're not already a Patreon patron subscriber donator friend and family of the site (laughs) the group a patron of the arts please consider for five dollars a month you get two additional episodes throw us some cash double shit double the spoilers but until then i've been matt bazell and i am ethan knight and there will be spoilers tell me exactly what you spoiled and what you think it means there Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.